Loving in the Past is supported by Colin Garrity. Designing and hand-building quality goods for your home, Colin Garrity makes everything from walnut wood folding tables to maple herb strippers. Simple, beautiful, and practical. Visit colingarrity.com to find a gift for anyone today. Dear one, if you will come back, I will make the jasmine bloom and all the trees come out in flower, and we will eat clouds for dessert, bathe in the foam of the rain, and I will let you play with my pistol, and you can win every golf game, and I will make you a new suit from a blue hydrangea bush and shoes from pecan shells, and I'll sew you a belt from leaves like maps of the world, and you can always be the one that's perfect. But if you write me about Lily, Dalmisha, and Constance, I will go off to Florida for a week and spend our money and make you jealous of my legs a la Creole when you get home. Zelda Fitzgerald. I'm Eliza. And I'm Kaden. And this is Love and At the turn of the 20th century, St. Paul, Minnesota was a classic Midwestern city, quiet, beautiful, and full of hardworking Americans. It was in this city on September 24th in 1896 that F. Scott Fitzgerald was born to a small middle-class family. His namesake, Francis Scott Key, writer of the Star-Spangled Banner, was his second cousin, a connection F. Scott and his mother Molly were both extremely proud of. Molly Fitzgerald was an intimidating woman who had no filter when she spoke. Her biggest goal as a mother was to elevate her children in society. Her son admitted being somewhat ashamed of her, and he viewed her brashness as a sign of lower class. F. Scott inherited an obsession with class from his mother. His father, Edward, though an alcoholic and failed businessman, had a sense of class that F. Scott always admired and attempted to emulate. F. Scott grew up extremely concerned with how other kids viewed him, an attribute he kept with him for his entire life. A look into F. Scott's childhood journals gives us a glimpse of his life in school and proof that his worst fears were coming true. Desperately unpopular, reads one entry, and had a birthday party to which no one came, reads another. A quote from the school newspaper reads, If anybody can poison Scotty or stop his mouth in some way, the school at large and myself will be obliged. F. Scott was unpopular because he was cocky and he lacked a sense of self-awareness. He was extremely narcissistic and always blamed his problems on anything but himself. After his novel The Great Gatsby was published, he sent his mother a copy with It's a Masterpiece, Mother, scrawled on the first page. His failures in writing and business he blamed on his parents, who he said spoiled him. As an adult, F. Scott was known by his friends as someone who always tipped waiters inordinate amounts of money, even when he was extremely broke. F. Scott knew he was in the public's eye, and he was desperate for that eye to love him, even if it cost him dearly. After high school, F. Scott attended Princeton University, a feat he was proud of for his entire life, despite the fact that he failed most of his classes and never graduated. He blamed his failing grades on the school's rigid curriculum. His grades were so poor that he barely evaded expulsion. Princeton was another area in which F. Scott obsessed with class. He was always concerned with which club he would join and how the other students viewed him. He cared a lot more about that than his report card. F. Scott's relationship with women was turbid from the start. He was extremely charming and flattering, but always seemed to care about himself a hair more than them. Always a master with his words, F. Scott won the women over by sweet-talking them. He often corresponded with multiple women at a time, never tying himself to just one. A satirical poem by one of his young flings named Marie, titled Ode to Himself, gives us a good idea of how he handled women. 
I am the great heartbreaker. I am the dreamer of dreams. I am the great love maker beneath the moon's palest gleams. Girl fusser and girl forsaker, they come at my back and call. And I am the mover and shaker of the whole world after all. F. Scott's preoccupation with women goes deeper than charm and romance. He was obsessed with the female sex and looked to her for validation. Throughout his entire life and marriage, he always had multiple women. His affairs were too numerous to count, and he bounced straight from one mistress to the next, all the while married to his wife, Zelda. Validation that F. Scott lacked from the reading public and publishing houses he got from women. It was women who gave him his much-needed attention to keep moving forward in life. Unsurprisingly, F. Scott was always conscious of his outward appearance and paid attention to details that other men of his era didn't. He had strong opinions on how women should act and look as well and told his younger sister Annabelle as much. He wrote her a detailed 10-page instruction manual on how to act around men in order to attract them, which included advice such as, boys like to talk about themselves much more than girls, and brush and wet your eyebrows every morning and every night. F. Scott was never one for subtlety, and he certainly never lacked an opinion. Zelda Sayre was born in Montgomery, Alabama on July 24, 1900. Her large family of nine was classically Southern, with thick accents and even thicker Confederate sympathies. Her father was well-known in the town, being a judge and politician whose office was in the state capitol building, and her mother was a typical Southern homemaker. From a very young age, Zelda was active, always participating in sports and dancing. She was known around Montgomery, a town that never lacked in gossip, as a little mischievous girl who was always getting herself into trouble. At one point in Zelda's young childhood, during a particularly slow, hot summer's day, she called the fire department and told them a child was stuck on her roof. She then climbed up to her roof, pushed the ladder away, and waited. Needless to say, the fire department was not pleased, but Zelda, always looking for attention and adventure, was extremely satisfied. Zelda has one focus in life, herself, which often resulted in little regard for others' feelings, property, and time. She would do things purely for the thrill of it and not think once about the possible outcomes. In her teenage years, Zelda's reputation for mischief continued, but added to it was a reputation of stunning good looks. She was the town's beauty, and every boy was vying for her attention, which she freely gave. She loved attention from boys and would often go from one boy to the next, never tying herself to one and intentionally using her status to make men jealous. Though she never attended college herself, she dated many young college men, some of whom, from the University of Alabama, even created a secret society dedicated to her. Zelda Sayre and F. Scott Fitzgerald met each other at a Saturday night dance in the year 1918, when F. Scott was serving in the Army and stationed near Montgomery. Zelda, who had recently graduated from high school, was only 17, and F. Scott was 22. The two started dating quickly, but despite their instant infatuation with each other, they kept seeing other people, Zelda especially. She acted on whims and never held back when she wanted to flirt. After a short fling with a certain young aviator, Zelda turned down his proposal, and when he asked her why she had kissed him, she simply responded, I never kissed a man with a mustache before. Zelda's little flirtations infuriated Scott, a tension that would last their entire lives. She made him jealous on purpose, and after Scott moved away from Alabama, she sent him letters filled with casual mentions of her flirtations. Zelda knew the reaction it provoked in F. Scott, and she relished his anger and jealousy. F. Scott eventually felt the need to lock her down, so he proposed. Zelda accepted at first, then after a little while broke it off, breaking F. Scott's heart at the same time. 
Shortly after their breakup, F. Scott wrote in a letter to his friend Ruth, Unless someday she will marry me, I will never marry. When his sadness gave way to anger, it didn't take him long to change his attitude, writing in a letter to his friend Ludlow, I'll tell you what the situation is now. I wouldn't care if she died, but I couldn't stand to have anybody else marry her. When their engagement was broken off, F. Scott was a poor, unpublished writer who hated his job. Eventually, a stroke of good fortune hit, and the NYC-based publishing house Schreibners agreed to publish F. Scott's manuscript titled This Side of Paradise. Upon hearing this, Zelda changed her tune and started seeing him again, but didn't agree to marry him until they thought she was pregnant. F. Scott purchased abortion pills, which Zelda refused to take, and eventually the situation cleared itself up, either by miscarriage or a false self-diagnosis to begin with. They began to plan a wedding, and with Zelda's doubts cleared, she wrote to F. Scott in a letter about their wedding, saying, Both of us are very splashy, vivid pictures, those kind with the details left out, but I know our colors will blend, and I think we'll look very well hanging beside each other in the gallery of life. Zelda Sayre and F. Scott Fitzgerald were married on April 3, 1920 in St. Patrick's Cathedral in Manhattan. Their first few years of marriage are the years that remain in most of America's conscience. Stars of the Jazz Age, the Fitzgeralds were known for their youthfulness, their partying, and their fame. F. Scott's first novel, This Side of Paradise, published in March of 1920, was a huge success, launching F. Scott and Zelda into America's spotlight. What kept them there was their carefree spirits and America's desire to know what they would do next. The young couple lived in New York City, spending most of their time there partying. They were often drunk, and when they drank, they got wild. During one particular drunken night at a party, F. Scott and Zelda gathered up all of the guests' jewelry, only to boil it in a pot of tomato soup. But they weren't only wild when they drank. When Zelda dove into the fountain at Union Square, she was completely sober. And when F. Scott and Zelda moved into a new apartment complex in New York City, they spun around in the revolving glass doors for 30 minutes. If their rocky courtship was any indication of how their marriage would go, they were not surprised that their marriage was filled with jealousy and fighting, interspersed with bouts of genuine love. F. Scott's writing made them good money, but they spent it all irresponsibly and quickly, and they were almost always in debt. A friend wrote F. Scott that his pockets were always full of damp little wads of hundred franc notes that he dribbled out behind him, the way some women do Kleenex. They quarreled often, both were stubborn, and both wanted to be center stage. Zelda had an extremely strong personality, and F. Scott didn't have much of one. He cared immensely what others thought of him, and Zelda didn't give a single damn how others thought of her. Zelda continued with her little flirtations after their marriage, and F. Scott seethed with jealousy and possessiveness, writing in a 1924 article, I have often wished that I had never laid eyes on my wife, but I can never stand for her to be out of my sight for more than five hours at a time. While Zelda maintained her flirtatious habits, F. Scott constantly had a mistress. Throughout their entire marriage, he went from one to the other, rarely being with just one woman, his wife included at a time. He would write about his furiousness at his wife for her flirting, then go and sleep with a young woman who was not his wife. In October of 1921, Zelda gave birth to a daughter, Scotty. Three months after Scotty's birth, Zelda was pregnant, but finding it too soon to have another child, she had an abortion. Later in life, the two tried to have more children, but Zelda was never able to get pregnant again. Scott's second novel, The Beautiful and the Damned, was published a few months later in March of 1922. In the summer of 1924, the Fitzgeralds moved to Europe, spending the summer in Provence on the French Riviera. 
F. Scott was hard at work each day writing his next novel, and Zelda, growing increasingly lonely, spent time every day down at the beach swimming. It was at the beach one day that she met a French aviator named Edouard Hosan, who she became extremely close to. The details of their relationship are muddled, as both F. Scott and Zelda gave different accounts for the rest of their lives. What is not debated is that while F. Scott stayed inside writing, Edward and Zelda spent time together every day, and whether or not they ever became physical, they certainly engaged in an emotional affair. After six weeks of this, Edward left the Riviera without warning, and the two never saw each other again, but his memory remained forever, haunting F. Scott and delighting Zelda. When he found out about the affair... F. Scott locked Zelda in their bedroom for a period of time, taking the key with him. When pressed by F. Scott after the affair, Zelda never confirmed or denied whether or not they slept together. The unknown facts enraged F. Scott and sparked his jealousy to an extreme degree. In July of that summer, Zelda overdosed on pills, attempting suicide, but it was unsuccessful. Writing about that summer eight years later, F. Scott simply said, I knew something had happened that could never be repaired. Their already unsteady relationship became, from then on, always on the brink of disrepair. After wintering in Italy, the Fitzgeralds moved to Paris in the spring of 1925, where they met a young American writer named Ernest Hemingway. F. Scott and Ernest connected immediately, becoming very close, while Zelda was more hesitant and distrustful. She wasn't fond of Ernest, and the dislike between them was mutual. Perhaps through jealousy or spite, Zelda accused F. Scott and Ernest of homosexuality. This struck a certain chord with F. Scott and affected him for the rest of his life. He often mentioned how much this particular accusation hurt him, partly because he worried that he was too feminine for his time. He wrote about himself, I'm half feminine, at least my mind is. A male such as F. Scott, who was very in touch with his feminine side, was, at the time, taboo. F. Scott worried constantly what others thought of him, and having Zelda make public accusations against him infuriated him. He retaliated unimaginatively by accusing her of lesbianism. In a letter to her later in life, he wrote, The idea began in an attempt to implicate me in what you thought were your own tendencies. He goes on to mention an incident with Dolly Wilde, the lesbian niece of writer Oscar Wilde, though he never says what the incident was. In April of 1925, soon after moving to Paris, F. Scott's novel that he'd been working on the previous summer at the Riviera was published. The Great Gatsby received much critical success, but little financial success. It sold less copies than his previous two novels. Despite this, the Fitzgeralds continued their life of luxury, racking up more and more debt. Extramarital flirtations played a constant character in the Fitzgerald's marriage. Zelda's were usually done privately, and she would then tell F. Scott about them, always remaining vague and never telling him how far she went with a guy. She purposefully teased him, knowing his mind was assuming the worst, and she enjoyed the way his jealousy raged. F. Scott flirted publicly in front of Zelda and in front of friends. One night in France, when the Fitzgeralds were having dinner with friends on an outdoor terrace, F. Scott went over to a neighboring table, at which sat the famed dancer Isadora Duncan. After seeing the two of them talk and flirt, Zelda quietly got up, walked over to the top of the outdoor stairwell, and flung herself down. She returned with only minor injuries, but she left everyone on the terrace that night with a lasting impression. Despite the always vicious and sometimes harmful reactions they provoked, both Zelda and F. Scott continued to engage in flirtations for the rest of their lives, and F. Scott never stopped having mistresses. He had a certain charm with women, and he knew it, and used it to his advantage. Laura Guthrie, one of Scott's many affairs, wrote that he reaches women through their minds, and yet he wants their bodies. 
He makes a woman who must keep her body to herself a wreck, either mental or physical, whichever part is weakest goes. The next few years of their lives were split between Europe and the United States. F. Scott continued to write and eventually got in the habit of using portions of Zelda's personal writing to fill gaps in his own. He included parts of Zelda's journals in his short stories and novels, publishing them under his own name without her knowledge or approval. He went on to publish entire short stories she had written, with her approval, under his name as they made more money if the public believed them to have been written by him. Zelda had always been a writer, but F. Scott never encouraged her in it, despite the fact that he blatantly plagiarized her work. While F. Scott wrote constantly, to fend off her boredom and loneliness, Zelda began taking ballet lessons, a hobby she became obsessed with, dancing every day to the point of exhaustion. F. Scott constantly put Zelda down, telling her in one letter, You are a third-rate writer and a third-rate ballet dancer. Later in the letter, he wrote of himself, I am a professional writer with a huge following, the highest-paid short story writer in the world. Never mind the fact that some of those short stories were written entirely by Zelda. He considered writing to be his field, and it bothered him immensely that she was encroaching in his area. Interspersed with their brief moments of love and their common moments of quarreling, the Fitzgerald's relationship also contained moments of physical abuse. Zelda and F. Scott argued heavily, often when they were drunk. When he drank, F. Scott became violent and sad, and he tended to cry. During one drunken night in front of Zelda's sister, Rosalind, he slapped Zelda hard across the face, causing a nosebleed. F. Scott's drinking consistently increased throughout their lives, and eventually he was an alcoholic, drinking 30 beers or one quart of gin per day. He knew his drinking was a problem, but he blamed it on anything but himself, his debt, his genes, etc. While F. Scott spent his days drinking and writing, Zelda slipped slowly towards madness. Mental illness ran in Zelda's family, and she and many other family members suffered from what her mother simply called nervous exhaustion. Suicide was common in the Sierra family. It took the life of Zelda's brother, grandmother, and aunt. Zelda's journey to madness was slow and steady. She started to have random outbursts of laughter, heard voices in her head, dealt with fainting fits, and suffered from bursts of hysteria. She twice had to be given a morphine injection by a doctor to help her calm down. During one outing with her husband, Zelda grabbed the car wheel from him and attempted to drive them off a cliff, unsuccessfully. Everything came to a head when, in the spring of 1930, Zelda had a breakdown and was diagnosed with schizophrenia. She spent time in a few different European sanitariums. She was released after a year and the Fitzgeralds returned to the U.S., but in 1932, Zelda had another breakdown. She was checked into a clinic at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. During her time at this particular clinic, Zelda started to write immensely. She spent two hours a day for months and eventually had written an entire novel, which infuriated F. Scott. He felt that she was stepping into his artistic territory and in an extremely hypocritical move, accused her of plagiarism. Eventually, after much debate and warfare, his anger subsided and he sent her novel to his publisher. Zelda's novel, Save Me the Waltz, was published in October of 1932. F. Scott was jealous of Zelda's ability to work so quickly, as he himself often struggled with writer's block, which he blamed on Zelda's illness and having to take care of her. He found it cruel and ironic that she was able to write an entire novel while living in a sanitarium, while he was the mentally stable one, living at home, barely able to complete a few short stories. He blamed his lack of writing, like everything else in his life, on anything but himself. He insisted that he was unable to write because of the harsh burden of having to care for Zelda. 
Zelda was in and out of clinics for the rest of her short life. She eventually settled in Highland Hospital in Asheville, North Carolina. While Zelda lived out her life in Asheville, F. Scott moved to Los Angeles and settled into a life with his mistress at the time, Sheila Graham. F. Scott signed a contract with MGM, and while writing for the film industry, he also continued writing novels. His final novel, published during his lifetime, Tender is the Night, was released in April of 1934. It was not well received, and its sales were low. The Fitzgeralds maintained regular communication through letters. Zelda was often romantic in hers, with a seemingly false view of their relationship. She viewed their issues as little trifles and always thought they could work through it with their love. She refused to accept the harsh reality of their abusive relationship. In one particularly sentimental letter, she wrote of her dream to buy a house with F. Scott. There are so many houses I'd like to live in with you. I don't know how you get one, but I think if we saved a great many things, stamps and cigar bands, soap wrappers and box tops, we could have it some way. She was delusional about the strength of their love and about their financial situation. F. Scott made regular visits to Asheville, and he and Zelda often went on little trips together, which all ended poorly, mostly due to Scott's heavy drinking. The two both considered divorce, especially since F. Scott was living with Sheila Graham, who he was practically married to, but they ultimately decided against it. The Fitzgeralds remained married until their deaths. Zelda eventually became suicidal and had a few failed attempts while living at Highland Hospital. F. Scott, too, flirted with suicide and after two unsuccessful attempts in the late 1930s, decided to turn his life around. He stopped drinking in 1939 and one year later died of a heart attack on December 21, 1940. He was 44 years old. Zelda did not attend his funeral. Zelda outlived F. Scott by eight years. She lived out the rest of her life in Asheville, and her tragic life ended in one final burst of tragedy. On the night of March 10, 1948, a kitchen fire spread through Highland Hospital. The building's outdoor fire escapes, which were made of wood, were no help to the patients, like Zelda, who slept on the top floor. Nine women, including Zelda, perished in the fire. The only thing left to identify her was a charred slipper that belonged to her. The Fitzgeralds have remained a popular and famous couple in the eyes of America, and their names are synonymous with the fondly remembered Jazz Age. F. Scott is remembered for his beloved novel, The Great Gatsby, but he is also responsible for other well-known tales that we cherish, such as The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Zelda is remembered for her vivacious personality, her stunning beauty, and her delicate charm. We, as a nation, love the Fitzgeralds. We choose to remember their best attributes and their greatest accomplishments, while we ignore the way they treated themselves and other people. The Great Gatsby will be taught in schools for years to come, and F. Scott's name will continue to be heralded as one of America's greatest writers. When remembering the Fitzgeralds, we need to look at the complete picture, diving past the clean surface and into the deep waters below. We need to enter Jay Gatsby's elaborate house, looking in every nook and cranny, instead of admiring it from afar, creating an exalted image of him we know deep down to be only a portion of the whole unfortunate truth. a special guest. Um, he is very special to me. He is my roommate and one of my best friends, and he is also the executive producer of <laughs> <laughs> Loving in the Past podcast. So Nate, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Nathan. I'm 
uh, one of Eliza's favorite people yeah. and also her roommate. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and Nate knows a lot about love and marriage because he has been married for yes, how long I've now? Been hap- Man, how long has it been now? <laughs> I've been happily married for almost three months. Yeah. So incredible. incredible. I, an expert. I, yeah, really I, amazing. I am kind of <laughs> really just amazing. like a, So you know all about sacrifice. Just the community. <laughs> hard work. Uh, kind of the yeah. person that people go to right. when they have relationships. Which is exactly why we wanted you to come on. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just after these three months and I was going to say long three months, but right. they really have just gone. They love is right. just kind of blinding, <laughs> um, but I have gotten it figured out. So sure. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Good. Sure. So yeah. I'm glad. Welcome. I'm, I'm, we're happy to have you here. Glad to be here. Um, I'll go ahead and start us off by saying that I, I, as I, I wrote this a long time ago, I'm looking at my Google doc right now. And the last time it was edited was on April 24th and it is uh, September 21st. <laughs> so it's been a while. <laughs> Nailed it. Um, and I, and I want to say that in my mind, I was, I, I'm not, I don't think I was very self-aware as I was writing this because in my mind I wrote it, um, very bipartisanly and the, felt that I um, took both sides equally, but Nate, do you think that I did that in writing this or do you think it was a little skewed? (laughs) I think you did a pretty good job because they both sound wildly insane. Okay. Yeah. They both sound crazy in their own ways. Sure. I, I, I dislike F Scott Fitzgerald more than a a lot of people. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that was unfortunately a little too clear in writing this. Um, I wouldn't say so. I feel like you did balance. Yeah. Everything. I I mean, nothing that I wrote in here was exaggerated. Every single thing. I mean, there were exact quotes from him. He slapped her so hard that she bled. I mean, there were all these things. And I think that leads us into our first discussion point, Mm -hmm. which is, um, why do we exalt him as America? One of America's greatest writer and, and one of America's greatest writers, and we um, choose to ignore how he treated people. Mm. And obviously, this is not just an issue with F. Scott Fitzgerald. This is totally. something that happens over and over and over again. Totally. Mm-hmm. But it's so clear. I mean, you guys, everyone knows who F. Scott Fitzgerald is, right? Did mm-hmm. you guys read a book by him yes. in class? I definitely you were sorry noted. were you instructed <laughs> to read I was supposed to read <laughs> whether you read it or not yeah <laughs> i read uh great gatsby in high school mm-hmm. is that the one that you guys were supposed to read yeah supposed to read kaden uh, definitely read it kaden's yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely read it and benjamin button i mean we all know sure. and love that story so we all know who f scott is but did you guys know this story of him or did you just know he's one of america's greatest writers no i mean i i knew like the jazz age couple thing totally like that was like they were just like the partiers mm-hmm. um but not and with that comes like you can kind of fill in the blanks a little mm-hmm. bit but mm-hmm. but not so much um vilified is the wrong word because it feels justified um, totally i don't think he was vilified i think he was he was a villain a villain <laughs> yeah. um but i you don't get to hear those those negative right. stories he's right he's just the roaring 20s yeah. author guy we totally romanticize him. We do. And Zelda. That's true. Um, but one of the things that's tricky for me is I actually feel like it, this is always confusing when there is like an amazing work of art made by someone mm-hmm. who themselves mm-hmm. is kind of terrible. Mm-hmm. How are they able to be kind right. of so, well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like so reflective about um, the internal lives of others when they seem to lack that self-awareness about You're themselves. so spot on. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, 
and it's people like not connect an easy... with what he wrote, but yeah. it's like and they he's... would not maybe connect with him as a person. Totally. And like, especially Gatsby is like, it's such a great character study. Like yeah. it's such an amazing yeah. version of someone who is actually himself, not very self-aware. Like, so it makes you wonder how could someone access the lives of others in such a deep way when they like clearly are like destroying themselves and Absolutely. destroying the people in their lives and Absolutely. not be able to kind of be like, well, well, maybe I should like look at myself a little bit. You know yeah. what I mean? And yeah, that kind absolutely. of, I don't think that totally answers your question, but it's like something that always comes up when I think about these artists who mm-hmm. are kind of terrible, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. yet create amazing works of art. I don't know if you well, guys have the answers. I think it's a common theme for, for really great artists to be known as like very self-consumed mm-hmm. or I guess in his case, like narcissistic, mm-hmm. which it seems like such a weird paradox that someone who it, like what you're saying, like narcissism and self-awareness are literally like opposite. But yeah, right, totally. opposites. <laughs> and and they're not in the real world, but somehow in they're, art, able, they're to able to tap to. into something in their mm-hmm. art mm-hmm. that becomes like subconsciously self-aware, even mm-hmm. though they can't apply that mm-hmm. in their lives, mm-hmm. which is so interesting. But that's like true in the music world. It's true in mm-hmm. the writing world and, and any sort of celebrity status, it mm-hmm. seems like who, so celebrity status in someone who people respect their art. Interesting. Um, yeah. And that's not all artists, but it right. seems to be a common theme. Interesting. Do you almost think it's like maybe they actually have a hard time working through their own like psychosis internally and so they have to externalize it totally. with these works of art? Um, and that's why it kind of never ends up happening um, in there in the place where it probably most needs to totally. be happening. Interesting. Um, yeah, and I, I think that F. Scott is a total narcissist. And I think even remember that letter where he said to Zelda, you are a third rate writer and a third rate ballad ballet dancer. Mm. And then later in that same letter, he said like, I am the world's preeminent short story writer, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) Even though he literally was plagiarizing some of her short stories. I mean, he's so incredibly unaware and so narcissistic. Well, and I think he almost, that was his insecurity. Like, that's why he needed to tell so her. Insecure. Yeah, that's yeah. why he needed to tell, to bring her down. Because why would he, he almost wanted, he saw her, probably understood that she was a great writer. Yeah. Um, felt yeah. some jealousy about that yeah. and then wanted to tear her down to his level. Because yeah. anyone who's confident just wants to lift. I mean, I know that's like a no, common, you're so right. a common um, well, and thought, that's what she I think... would do to him, honestly. Like, she had her own abusiveness towards him mm-hmm. in her own way, absolutely. But she did always compliment him. She mm-hmm. did recognize his talent. And I think it's because Zelda was a confident person. Mm-hmm. And whether that confidence was rooted in uh, her being lucid or not, I right. don't know, because right. she wasn't. She was mentally ill. But she did have a self confidence from the start, like, even going all the way back to her at all the dances when she was 18. And she just had this confidence, and everyone loved her. Mm-hmm. And F. Scott never had that. Mm-hmm. He always wanted everyone to love him, but they didn't like remember the kids. Literally yeah. that, that journal entry had a birth through, through a party to which no one came. So they're polar opposites. Yeah. They're polar opposites. Interesting. And she was confident. And again, it was, she, it wasn't a very lucid confidence, but she did lift him up and it was, she was blinded while she did it. But mm-hmm. yeah, if you're confident, you lift other people up and mm-hmm. if you're insecure, you put people down. Right. It's interesting though. Cause I mean, and that wasn't like a full thesis on his life, but Mm -hmm. it seems like his lashing out was almost exclusively directed at her. Mm -hmm. Like Mm that they were in competition. Whereas like, it's interesting that he was such good friends with Ernest Hemingway who Mm. would be at the time considered like 
potentially a rival or You're something. Right. Yeah. But they were like super good friends. He yeah. wasn't like Ernest Hemingway's a hack. Right. Huh. Which is so interesting. You're right. Yeah, it was it was like her. he felt threatened by his significant other mm-hmm. and felt like he needed he was like in direct competition with her. And yeah. so when he would lash out, she would lash out. Mm-hmm. And I like that happens in toxic relationships mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. Where right. it's like are they in competition? Like, yeah. like when you're out to dinner and it's like super awkward. And yeah. It's just like they're making fun of each other and you're like, oh my God. Like that, that was so mean yeah. what she just yeah. said about her husband. Like yeah. that was terrible. It seems like that is a really, that happens a lot, I guess. That's so interesting. But it, yeah. it's interesting that he was such good friends with other colleagues. That makes so much sense. No, you're right. Without you're right. Yeah. being known for destroying the world as he yeah. went. Yeah. Well, I feel like in my experience, when that happens, I almost feel like it is because so with a relationship, um, if it's if you see relationships in an unhealthy way, there's a possessiveness there. And I think I wonder if it was almost a fear if she realized her brilliance, if she was able to recognize her brilliance, he could not possess her in the way that he mm-hmm. wanted to possess totally. her because yeah, um, I wouldn't have even thought of the point that you made but now that you made it it's just like yeah why wouldn't he be more jealous of Ernest Hemingway mm-hmm. who clearly right. who was an like actual, actual yeah. 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 yeah exactly but I think that there was yeah. clearly something some sort of yeah. possessiveness that was power. driving the oh, need right. to like yeah um, to, to tear down her specifically and since there was like literally zero percent trust in the relationship mm-hmm. that makes sense yeah. it, it was just like constantly maybe having to prove mm. why you're worth that other person's time yeah. a little mm-hmm. bit and why they're not worth almost not why they're not worth yours but why they're not worth anyone else's mm-hmm. so that they can't possibly yeah, they should work harder go to for be anyone else yeah, yeah exactly mm-hmm. yep you're yep. lucky to be with me yeah mm-hmm. yeah attitude yeah. yep but i also think he was a bit of a fuck boy <laughs> i think if he was living in our current times he would be sliding into a lot of dms yeah (laughs) i think there would be a lot of sliding for sure Mm. um but she was the one who actually got the boys you know like i mean he had mistresses for sure but she was getting all that attention without really even asking for it and he was like begging for it right right it sounds like he was good though yeah, yeah, the women were like, yeah, yeah, like he, yeah. he, <laughs> he gets what to our doing. minds to get to our bodies or whatever yeah. that quote was. Um, yeah. And Sheila Graham, the one that he lived with in L.A., we mentioned in our um, previous episode about Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz because they lived in the same apartment complex as Lucille Ball and Desi Whoa. Arnaz. And they would literally put they would hear because Lucille and Desi had these huge blowout fights. And Sheila Graham and F. Scott Fitzgerald would put bets on like who they thought would go the longest That's or like amazing. who would win. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and then yeah oh that is so interesting um let's see wait so on that topic of fuck boys what's interesting is like i feel like that even the term is just like oh fuck boys like and you almost oversimplify it Mm -hmm. but then now that you know we've already kind of gotten into this like psychology of what drives f scott i wonder how much of that is also what drives these like fuck boys because i do you know what i mean or or yeah a lack of confidence for sure yeah and the one fuck boy that i have encountered in my life (laughs) and engaged (laughs) my vast experience He had no confidence and he was a narcissist. Totally. Oh, that's actually <laughs> that yeah. not a diagnosed yeah. narcissist, but he certainly was very self-obsessed, mm-hmm. but he also had no confidence. Like highly insecure. Yeah. Well, Absolutely. it wouldn't be a podcast if we didn't bring up the Enneagram. <laughs> <laughs> so and, I'm a two. And like in the first two minutes, I felt personally attacked that you chose me on this, <laughs> this episode. Cause I was like, oh, they're just picking 
guests to come talk mm-hmm. about, and they're just like drew out of a hat. And I was like, yo, this guy's a three for sure. Oh yeah. Like immediately, like oh. once, once everyone to like him and, mm-hmm. um, very, um, and I didn't mean to project his Enneagram number. He can, <laughs> he can read it himself and decide, but, um, he cares about class, like from mm-hmm. a really yeah. early age. Mm-hmm. And his father was an alcoholic and mm-hmm. he was like, yeah, but he's awesome. Yeah. And like <laughs> cared how he dressed and, and, and like that is totally a three. And I was like, Oh, this, I mean, I relate to mm, that aspect yeah. of it mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah. And then just to be able to put that on the rest of his yeah. story is like textbook mm. in my experience with like what a three would be. Mm-hmm. And, interesting. and it's just so yeah. interesting to be able to like draw that out. Yeah. And almost see like the more negative side. Cause like, I mean, you don't know, no one knows Nate, but Nate's delightful. And oh, so geez. almost to see the like more negative um, like the flip side oh, of yeah, the like three, an like unhealthy, the, an unhealthy, yeah. yeah Cause and narcissism be like a very, is like a perfect direction you would so have interesting. As, yeah. As an unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Three. You have not told me exactly in those words to wet my eyebrows every morning and every night, but you have told me Eliza <laughs> go change <laughs> the outfit is not working. <laughs> so yeah, I think totally you're a three. He's a three. Yeah, for sure. For sure. What do we think Zelda was? And I don't know the Enneagram as well as you guys do. But you do know Hogwarts houses. I do, and we need to do that next for <laughs> I sure. I think she was like, and and I'm no expert. I brought it up. This is my mistake. But right. I think seven is like the fun-loving one. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And and that sounds like her to me in totally. just like a, a broad, like it yeah. sounds like she wasn't as thought out yeah. as F. Scott no, was. No, she threw herself down a stairwell. <laughs> she did not she think about her fire consequences. And then right. climbed the roof. Like, that is and then so pushed badass, the ladder away. Honestly. She did not yeah. think it's about so consequences badass. ever. Totally. She was like punk rock. Like, yeah, v- yeah, very before kind that of was, punk yeah. rock. Good, good point. She was also mentally ill. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 so yeah. yeah. No, yes. But I, she came across much more whimsical. Right, which is why America loved them. Totally. Which is why they loved her, because they always wanted to see what she would do next. Yeah. Um, I think he's a goddamn Slytherin, and I hate oh, him. Oh, for sure, for sure. But and, I'm I'm not convinced that, that was, that's what she was. I think she uh, was probably... Gryffindor? A Gryffindor. Yeah, she had to have been a Gryffindor. Which are interchangeable, if you think about it. <laughs> all right, all right. Nate's we a little wanna... salty because we made him take the Pottermore test, and he took it once, and he was a Slytherin, which he was V happy about, and then he took it again, and he was a Gryffindor, which and he was here's the V thing. upset about. <laughs> we always knew he was a Gryffindor. And it's such a it's Gryffindor thing undecided. to want to be a Slytherin. So it's Gryffindor. Such classic, it's so yeah, Gryffindor. Such a classic Gryffindor Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. Um, I'm not, not allowed to watch we... the movies, so I'm not, I'm not <laughs> sure. All right, all right. We're going to move on. <laughs> so... We, we just touched on it, but I think what just happened, and I was totally a part of it as well, but I think what just happened is something that happens a lot, which was like almost um, not glorifying, but like idealizing her mental illness because mm. yes, it, it stopped her inhibitions. She didn't have any, but, and we call it like fun loving. And to a certain extent, yes, she was right. right? Like mm-hmm. she wasn't diagnosed schizophrenic and that didn't, didn't really start to present itself very seriously until she was older, but, and she was still fun loving and no consequences when she was younger, but a huge part of that was her mental illness. And that's something that we should not, um, uh, forget. Totally. I think. Totally. Yeah. Not something we should idealize. Mm -hmm. And I just think that's a huge player in this story. And so to some extent, I love to hate F. Scott because he treated her so poorly. Mm -hmm. But to another extent, I recognize that he had, it was not easy for him to be married to Zelda. Yes. And I get that. She seemed very 
like almost spiteful in in the way that she enjoyed the jealousy aspect. Absolutely. Yes. She I was a fuckboy for sure. For sure. But it didn't seem so like directed at her as much as it was like his selfishness. Mm-hmm. It felt much more internalized. Like mm-hmm. I'm going to do whatever I want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And hers felt much more like I'm going to do whatever's going to hurt reaction. him. Yeah. The most. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, which is weirdly more emotionally abusive totally. than what he was doing, even though he was still being emotionally abusive. Right. Yeah. She, and she knew what she was doing and he yeah. did too, but she knew that I'm going to do this to, to make him mad. And she like really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And, and then it, told him about right. it just to yeah. see what his reaction was. But told him just be. enough. Right. And let him run with all the details. Right. Mm-hmm. And she knew exactly what she was doing. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. But I, I think that, um, Zelda was a very beautiful mind and I think that she was a beautiful person and I um I think that there are oftentimes people who struggle with mental illnesses like she did um because they have those lack of inhibitions they have that with their emotions as well and she's she was able to feel things on such Mm. an intense level that you and I like stop ourselves from feeling she said these really beautiful things like talking about and who knows what her intention behind this was but talking about like i don't know how we can buy a house but maybe we can like save up box tops you know it's like very child that's very yeah yeah and she just like doesn't have the um we stop ourselves from like feeling everything to the fullest extent and she didn't do that and that's what oftentimes mental illness does to you is it you don't stop yourself from feeling like we do. So that's a good I think point. she was a really beautiful person and I think she wrote really beautiful things. And I think she did. I think they both did have a genuine love for each other. Um, but I don't know. Mental illness runs in my family and it, the, the time period is another thing to account for because mm-hmm. that was in the forties and they just shut her up in a sanatorium. And my grandfather was, was bipolar and he was diagnosed in the sixties. And even then I, the sixties is not that long ago, but even mm-hmm. then, like my mom tells me that, that, that they sat the kids down one day and said like, this is happening. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell mm-hmm. your friends at school. Mm-hmm. Don't tell anyone. Um, because they also just didn't know how to treat it back then as well. Right. And especially in the forties, like he, he sent her off to a sanatorium. Like so they just didn't know what to do. So right. there's an aspect of not understanding mental illness the way that we understand it now. But I don't know. I think I have, I think there's a couple different reasons. I have more of like a patience and understanding for mental illness. One, because it runs in my family Two because I work in the medical field and I see a lot of patients with, you know, psych issues and concerns and the guy I my ex who I dated for almost four years is bipolar and was diagnosed was diagnosed right after we split but that was definitely present during our relationship and so I see both sides I recognize that um it's not easy to be with someone who is dealing with that totally yeah that's a good point but I also maintain that my ex who is bipolar is one of the strongest feeling and like intelligent Mm -hmm. and artistically aware people that I know and have Mm -hmm. ever met. And I think I don't want to say that's all because of his mental illness, but I think part of it possibly is. That makes sense. Do you feel like if we were able to treat mental illness or, you know, find ways to treat mental illness, um, in a healthier way that they could still access those things, um, and kind of give that to the world, but in, as a healthier version of themselves, or do you think if you, you know, treat the mental illness and, and solve that, does all of that go away? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. 
the idealist in me wants to say like, no. And also the idealist in me wants to say like, no, we as like, you know, generally healthy people, if we allow ourselves to, can, can, um, delve into that realm of emotion, but then know how to bring ourselves back. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm not sure that's like more of a question. Mm -hmm. Um, I would Mm -hmm. like to think that, but I don't Mm -hmm. know if that's true. Yeah. yeah. What do you You're saying think? being able to like tap into the creative, the creative and the, and the emotions, like to be able to say like, yes, I'm going to feel, you know, like the thing that Zelda said, like, you know, no matter if I, you know, even if we have to live, um, yeah. like in this, I don't know, shack, yeah. I still want to be with you. Could we still have that depth of feeling, but also be like, but you know, we don't have to do that and let's right. get a house, you know, <laughs> right. like, um, kind of be able to tap into the feeling without the, um, negative consequences that the lack of control that a mental illness brings right. would, would give us. Yeah. I don't know if there's a, I don't know if that's an easy question to answer. She wrote a really beautiful thing and I'm not trying to move on from your mm. question. I just think this is no. an example of what we we're talking about. She wrote this. This is one of the most beautiful things I have ever read. And it just struck me. It was in a letter that she wrote to F Scott when she was 18 years old. She said, and in a hundred years, I think I shall like having young people speculate on whether my eyes were brown or blue. Of course they are neither. I hope my grave has an air of many, many years ago about it. Mm. Old death is so beautiful. So very beautiful. And we will die together. I know. She wrote that to him when she was 18. And of course, it's like so tragic to think that they didn't die together. Right. She died in a fire when she was trapped on the top floor uh, and the yeah. fire escape was made of wood. Uh, and he was in L.A. with his mistress. That's right. like so tragic. But she had this like beautiful way of looking at the world where right. she was like, death is beautiful. And I think that we'll die together. And she she was not afraid to feel. Right. And right. that is something that I admire. And it's something that I wish I did more. Right. Because I don't think, I think he was afraid to feel. Totally. And I don't think she was at all. Yeah. And maybe they did in a more poetic way die together. I mean, we don't know. I'd like to think like maybe she meant that in a, they certainly live together like after their death. Like we we think of them together as a couple. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's hard to think of one without the other. Mm -hmm. It's just a wild ride. That whole relationship. It's one of, it's the perfect example of like, Truth is stranger than fiction. Yeah. Every single thing that I wrote in those 12 pages, <laughs> which Nate said was, quote, not a thesis, but I spent I mean, a lot was, of time on that. It was a thesis. <laughs> uh, but everything, nothing in there was, an, not that any of the things that we write for this podcast are an exaggeration, but it, sometimes I feel like I have to clarify that because I'm like, this shit is crazy. Yeah. I, the I, things that they did to each other I, is absolutely well, insane. He other, locked her in a house. Yeah, that part was wild. And then just the things they did in general were crazy. Like, they... The boiled their jewelry in tomato, tomato soup. soup. Like, like that's how we should have started this discussion. <laughs> like, right. it, like that was like their drunken, like right mischief. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like when we think it, I, our I drunken remember. mischief, Nate, is showering with our clothes on, which <laughs> yeah. you and I have both done on separate occasions <laughs> when we got drunk. Totally. And like, and people are like, "Oh man, we got wild downtown this weekend." And it's yeah. like, usually it's the same story, just different yeah. people telling it. Right. And they, if they were our friends, they're like, "Yo, no, 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 I don't know what happened, but I got so drunk and I stole everyone's, everyone's watch, story. and then we put on tomato soup on the stove." And we just thought it would be fucking hilarious <laughs> if we just boiled it. Everyone was pretty mad. I'm a little bit mad at myself for thinking about it. But like, you would be like, you You're didn't, like, you did not do that thing yeah. that you're talking about. Totally. That's just wild. Totally. 
They mm. were like just such interesting yeah. minds. Yeah. And like running around revolving doors for half an hour. Like, 30 minutes. I can't. I can't yeah. relate I to them. I don't have the stamina for that. I'm 25. I'd yeah. get heartburn or something and then I would have to sit, sit they down. They were just like so interesting yeah. just as people. And that was like sober. But right. And that is totally why we idealize them and we think back and we're like, F. Scott Zelda, we love it. We love to see these pictures of the jazz age and we love to see these pictures of the beautiful clothes that came from it and art deco and we love it, et cetera, et cetera. But then you think, oh my God, he died at 44 of a heart attack right? right. because he right. drank a quart of gin a day. Right. And so we choose to like idealize the jazz age and we totally forget about what came next. That's and, like, true. That's true. What always comes next if totally. you live like that. But I also, again, the idealist in me wants to say like, can't we just do that and not drink ourselves to death? Here's an option. We do the Crazy. same thing. Excuse me, guys. We do the same thing today though. Like the, this yeah. is not unique no, to, to the jazz totally. age no, at you're all. So like, right. You're so right. SoundCloud rappers and yeah. like the people yeah. who are like mm-hmm. out very, very blatantly like destroying their lives with yeah. Yeah. drugs and alcohol, yeah. like are the most popular celebrities and artists out there that's currently mm-hmm. and and we're going to remember them for their art right but even, then, even then we would have remembered demi lovato for if this overdose that she just had if she had died from it yeah. you know that would we be would have remembered that yeah we would have remembered that yeah. yeah but i think we could encourage like just like we were saying like that aspect of their behavior that was really uninhibited mm-hmm. what if we just as a culture and society start to encourage that more and it's actually braver and more interesting to do it without these Mm -hmm. um you know Mm -hmm. substances in the way so maybe that's like the next step that we can we can take i don't know totally agree i think that's a great point to end on cool (laughs) i've been nate i've been eliza and i've been kaden and this is love